This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. God, we thank you for your word, your word that is historical, historically reliable, and gives us abounding reasons for believing that this person, Jesus, is special, and that he is sent from you. And that he really did and said the things uh, that we read about. Please help us to believe, we pray. In his name. Amen. So, um, one of the things I've been doing this week, I was at a student's camp, annual camp with uh, 200 over students. And I have to run a workshop each time. And this time was on the historical reliability of the Gospels. So I learned new things, which I want to, you know, share just a little bit with you. Okay, so uh, whenever you, maybe you share the gospel with your friends, and then you tell them, you know, maybe two ways to live, this and that, and then they might be interested, and if they're interested, the next thing you could do is to say, hey, why not read, you know, the gospel of John, or read the gospel of Mark with me. Now, at that point, your friend may express skepticism, and say, but and this written by you know Christians, how can we trust that what they have written is reliable? Okay, so there's all sorts of arguments to be made uh, in favor of that. But I just learned something new which I want to share with you, which you uh, might be able uh, to use on your friends as well. Okay, so the thing is, people believe, or the skeptics say that the Gospels were written many, 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 many years after the original events. Okay, so like maybe in the second century or much later, so that what they recall uh, would be, you know, disjointed and exaggerated and no longer true. Because it's written so long after the event. Another charge against the Gospels is that, uh, you know, it is invented, it's just biased uh, inventions. Okay, I just want to get you to imagine if you had to write a fictional story about a fishing village in Malaysia 50 years ago. Okay, so just, just imagine. Okay, this is the task. Okay, you've got to make up this story about a fishing village okay, in Malaysia set 50 years ago. Okay, now one thing that you would have to do is to come up with names. Okay, so what sort of names will you come up with? You come up with names that, okay, you know, like Malaysian sounding names are maybe, you know, Ahmad, uh, Muhammad, you know, then... Okay, something, something, or you come up with names. Okay, there are a lot of names in the Gospels and Acts. Okay, so there's this study that was done based on archaeological evidence, and they studied 3,000 names. Okay, 3,000 names that came out from inscriptions, from the bone boxes, you know, from letters that they found. Okay, so they had 3,000 names. Now, out of the 3,000 names, they were able... Okay, this is Israel, huh? So the 3,000 names in Israel, they were able to find the most common names. Okay, are you, are you with me? So this is, this is the reality. Based on historical, archaeological evidence, this is not talking about the Bible yet, they have 3,000 names and then they're able to find the most common names. Okay, so you can show the next slide. So you see that the most, the top two most common men's names Okay, in Israel, is Simon and Joseph, and they make up 15.6% of the population. In the Gospels and Acts, the same two most common names 
which is also Simon and Joseph, make up 18.2% of the people, of the characters in the Gospels and Acts. The top nine men's names in the population of Israel, 41%. In the Gospels and Acts, 40%. Okay, I hope you, you know, okay, I, I maybe need to, okay, decipher this for you. If you come up with names for that Malaysian fishing village, okay, unless you went to some Malaysian census and, you know, based on, you know, what are the most common names in that part of Malaysia 50 years ago, there is no way you can know what the common names are and there's no way you can get them proportionally right. Does it make sense? Unless you're simply recording the truth. There's no way to forge this because there was no, you know, like no Wikipedia you could consult. There's no bookshop you could go to. Oh, what are the, you know, uh, you know, most common names for Israel babies, you know, in, in, in that year. So the fact that they can get this to such a high accuracy is because they were simply recording the truth. Now, the thing about names is this, right? How many of you can remember the names of the speaker's wife and children? Our, our church camp speaker. Anyone? All seven of them. Can you remember the, uh, you know, the names? Okay, it's very hard, right? Okay, I mean, you heard it. Okay, the thing about names is this. You go to an event, and if that event was personal and special to you, Months later, years later, you can relate the details of the event because it was something you know, special to you that happened. But rarely could you also be able to recall the names. And the point is because the, what actually happened, the major details, the event itself was what was special to you. You're able to recall it and narrate it accurately. But the names, okay, that one's a minor detail, okay, it doesn't really matter. Now, what we have in the Gospels is the accurate transmission of names, which is the minor detail. And so, if they are able to get the minor detail right, then we can trust that the major details of what Jesus said and what he did, they also got it right. Okay, now, none of this by itself can prove that the Gospels are historically reliable. But it's that whole you know, network of these arguments together that say, yes, there is evidence, there is high plausibility that the Gospels are historical and should be you know, rightly investigated by your friend. Okay, so that's just, that's just uh, to whet your appetite. Okay? Um, now, I want to move on to the other thing which gives us evidence for why we can trust, which is that there are predictions made about Jesus, which he fulfills. Predictions that would be very hard for Jesus himself or for his followers to manufacture. Okay, so turn with me to uh, Matthew. And we're looking at the manner of his birth. The manner of his birth. So Matthew chapter 1, verse... 18 to 25. And the prophecy that is being fulfilled there 
uh, you can see in verse 23, uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet, and this is referring to the prophet Isaiah. And interestingly, uh, the children in Sunday school is also learning this passage, Isaiah chapter 7, which says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, as you can uh, remember from the responsive reading, Mary was pledged to be married, so she wasn't married to Joseph yet. So at that moment in time, she is a virgin. Okay? She has not had any sexual relations, and she is pregnant. Okay? And so uh, Matthew writes for us, hey, this is prophecy fulfilled, that prophecy all the way back, you know, seven, eight hundred years ago in Isaiah, that said, a virgin will be with child. And when Matthew comes to this point and he sees the, the, the manner of Jesus' birth, that Mary was a virgin and she gave birth to Jesus. Now, one of the you know, counter-arguments that uh, skeptics will make is, you know, uh, doesn't virgin here simply mean a young woman? You know, so, you know, like there's three young women sitting in the front seat, you know. It, it, it doesn't technically have to mean virgin, you know, like, you know, okay. Now, there is some truth to it, okay, there's a, some truth to it that uh, the word that is used sometimes refers to women who are young and not technically, they don't technically have to be virgins. Okay, but the, the point is this, right, that prophecy in Isaiah is given as a sign. This is a special sign. Now, what's so special if it simply means young women will get pregnant and give birth? Because that happens in every age, in every country, young women are getting pregnant and giving birth. So there's nothing special about the sign unless it is specifically talking about a virgin, someone who has not had um, you know, sexual uh, intercourse and still is pregnant. Now then the skeptics will come and say, but, but this is miraculous. How can we believe something miraculous? Okay, well, look at, the, look at the prophecy in verse 23 again. It says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew deciphers that word for us, which means God with us. So this is a special sign. A special sign that when a virgin gives birth, even without you know any help from a man, this is a sign that God is with us. So for our friends to automatically dismiss any notion of the supernatural, means that you know, they're, they're, they're completely throwing everything out. Because if what the sign is trying to point to, if the sign is trying to point to that God is with us, and God with us means that there must be a way God is trying to tell us, okay, this one is special. It's talking about God being with us. It means that it's possible that there can be temporary suspension of the way things move, things uh, work naturally. Because how else could God clearly get across to us that this one is special, this one is the sign 
that I am now with you. Okay, does, does that make sense? Okay, so the supernatural, in fact, is the way God gets across to us that something special is happening, that He is indeed with us. Okay, so that's the you know, prophecy that Jesus fulfills, which, you know, like, obviously, from His point of view, it's very hard for Him to fake, it's very hard for Him to manufacture. Okay? Uh, the next one as well, in uh, Matthew chapter 2, is uh, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. Now, of course, you know, none of us have any choice where we are born. Okay? Now, I wonder how many of us, if we had a choice, we would still choose Singapore. Okay, never mind, don't tell me. But uh, Jesus obviously had no choice to be born in uh, Bethlehem. Uh, but you could argue, oh, but you know, David, uh, sorry, um, uh, Joseph and Mary know that, oh, they have to go back to the town of David in order to fulfill this prophecy. Okay, but look at the narrative. It is not actually Joseph and Mary who know about this prophecy. The way this prophecy comes to us is actually by the enemies of Jesus. It is Jesus' enemies, Jesus' opponents, who discover this prophecy. And so uh, they find out in chapter 2, verse 5, In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, and quoting from Micah chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the point is, the reasons for believing that Jesus, what he said, what he did can be trusted, for telling your friends to examine him, that it is worth the effort, is historically reliable. And the fact that he fulfills these predictions written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Okay, it's just another um, you know, argument you know, for our friends. Consider this. You know, how could he fulfill you know, all these written hundreds of years ago and fulfill it uh, to a T? So this is the manner of his birth. I want to now consider with us the manner of his death and from John 19. So please uh, flip to John 19 with me. Now John 19, uh, out of all the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, it contains the most number of uh, explicit Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm only going to look at uh, a few of them. Okay, so there, there are many more. Okay, many more that again Jesus you know, uh, would have a lot of trouble trying to uh, manipulate and bring about. Okay? Because these are the things that his enemies do for him. You know? And it, uh, when John sees it, sees that it fulfills scripture. But taking up from verse 28, verse 28 okay, the first prophecy is there, uh, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, later knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. 
Okay, now John doesn't specify which scripture it is that is fulfilled. But the one that he has in mind is Psalm 69. Okay, we won't turn back to it. But Psalm 69, Psalm 69 says that uh, they gave me gall for food and sour wine for my drink. Okay, so can you see how it fulfills? Okay, now it doesn't say that Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Okay, but what is fulfilled is that the enemies give him this vinegar. Enemies give him sour wine. So Jesus is on the cross and he's thirsty and his opponents, instead of you know, having some compassion, give him water. You know, give him something nice to drink. They give him wine that has gone bad. Sour wine. And that the giving of sour wine by his opponents, John sees, ah, that fulfills Psalm 69. Now, why is it so significant that Psalm 69 is fulfilled? Because Psalm 69 is written by King David. And Psalm 69 is King David in that psalm talking about how his opponents tekan him. And John sees in this and he finds that it is significant because Jesus is hanging on the cross. And that creature to everyone else is a creature that dared to rebel against Rome. And you see what has happened to him. He's now he's naked, he's bleeding, he's been whipped, and now he's hanging on a cross. But John sees in that prophecy of sour wine being given to Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 69. Because Psalm 69 is written by a king of Israel. Psalm 69 is prophesying that this is what happens to the king. This will be what will happen to the king. That they will, he will be so tekan and humiliated by his opponents that they will even give him sour wine to drink. So Jesus hanging there looks nothing like a king. But John wants us to know that yes, in spite of not looking anything like the king, he is actually fulfilling the prophecies about the king. Because that is who he is. So that's the prophecy, uh, first prophecy there in our little passage for our consideration. The second prophecy is what happens uh, to Jesus' legs. Now, the story is that uh, it is after the Passover, and so, you know, Jesus was crucified on Friday, and so the Sabbath, which is the Saturday of the, that week, is a special Sabbath. So the Jews, as you can see from the passage, they make special requests. Oh, can you please bring the, the prisoners down? You know, I mean, it's a bit like, uh, hey, it's, it's, it's Christmas, you know. Can we, can we take the heads of these criminals down? You know, like, you know, it's Christmas, you know, it's a special occasion. So it's a special Sabbath. So they, you know, the Jews want uh, Roman authorities, please bring down the bodies from the cross because, you know, we, we uh, don't want the land to be defiled. And so the... A Roman governor uh, accepts their request, and so the way they hasten the death on the cross is by breaking the legs. Because once you break the legs, you no longer are able to use your legs to push up. Okay, so the way you died on the cross is when you are slumped down, you can, you can take in air. 
So you can take in air. But in order to exhale, you need to actually push yourself up a bit. Uh, but because you are kneeled here and here and at your ankles, each time you push up, obviously it's excruciating, it takes up a lot of energy. And people on the cross have been known to last three days before they finally died. So the, the Jews know about this, so they say, okay, okay, please, please, you know, the Sabbath is a special day, can, can, you, can you take them down? So the soldiers broke the legs of the criminals around Jesus, because with the legs broken, you can only depend on your arms to pull yourself up, and that would uh, greatly accelerate death. But notice what happens when they come to Jesus. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, the doctors in our midst uh, will tell you that medical science has now told us that whenever the blood and the water separate, okay, it is a sure sign that the person has died. Okay, so whenever I you know, used to study John, this is what I would tell my friends. Lah, see? So this is proof. Because some people say, oh, you know, Jesus resurrected. That's because he didn't really die. He only fainted. And then in the coolness of the tomb, he came back alive again. Because he didn't really die. Well, here is proof that he really died. Because the water and the blood had separated. Now, this was all I thought it meant. But you look at what John says. After seeing the legs of Jesus not broken, after seeing the blood and the water flowing out, look at John's reaction. Verse 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Okay, can you see verse 35? Now, this is one way of reading it. Okay, you need to be clear that um, the person that John is speaking about in the third person, where he says, the man who saw it has given... Okay, he's actually talking about himself. Okay, John likes to refer to himself in the third person. Now, the way I read it is one way of reading it. But let me tell you what is the more accurate way of reading verse 35. Okay, ready? Okay, the more accurate way of verse 35 is this. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. Okay, this is the more accurate way of reading it. Because when we come to this point in John, John is... You know, from his words, he keeps repeating and saying again and again that he's the one who saw it and what he sees is true and he testifies because what he saw is true. What? I mean, he's getting overly excited. I mean, there are many prophecies that he's been uh, relating here in John 19. And in fact, in, in the whole of the gospel, he says, oh, this happened to fulfill this. Oh, this happened to fulfill this. But when, we, when he comes to this point, the legs of Jesus not broken. The blood and the water coming out, he gets excited. He gets excited. Why is he so excited? Well, let's look at the first um, prophecy that's fulfilled. It's there in verse 36. These things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones 
will be broken. Now, this is referring back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, where Moses is giving the Israelites instructions for how to have the first Passover feast. So you know that the Israelites, they are slaves in Egypt, and God is trying to get them out of slavery, bring them into their own land. And so the first nine plagues, you know, the frogs, the gnats, the darkness, the blood, and all that, uh, Pharaoh is still, no, I will not let them go, right? So it comes down to the tenth and the last plague, which is that the angel of death will come over the whole land of Egypt. And the angel of death coming is representing God's judgment. Now the reality is that it is not just the Egyptians who are guilty. It is not just the Egyptians who will fall under God's judgment. The Israelites themselves are, they also don't have clean underwear. So if the angel of death comes, then everyone will be wiped out, right? But so Moses says, okay, for you, in order to save your firstborn son, okay, you must take a perfect lamb, okay, and this is what you must do, you must cook it, you know, this and that, this and that, and then the blood of that lamb, you must paint it on the door. And so when the angel of death comes, uh, and then the firstborn son will be spared. Every house that doesn't have that blood on the doorpost, the firstborn will die. And so can you imagine the Israelite family, they, they take a lamb in, I mean, they, they, they don't leave it to chance, right? So early, early on, they, they try and find the lamb. Oh, okay, this one, this one, this one looks unblemished enough. So they bring the lamb in, and then make sure they keep it safe, and then the children, I mean, the children, they, they get to know the lamb, and then maybe they give it a name, they call it Sean, you know? And then they, they begin to have, you know, closeness to the lamb. But then the, the day of that Passover is coming. So the father takes the lamb and, you know, it's very clear what he wants to do. And then the children are going, no, 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 daddy, no, why are you doing the lamb? Don't kill the lamb, don't kill Sean. No, you know, we like Sean. But then, okay, daddy and mommy sit down and explain, oh, okay, this is what Moses has taught us. Uh, the Lord our God is going to uh, save us and rescue us from slavery in Egypt. And so the angel of death is coming. Okay, And if we don't kill Sean, and put his blood on the doorpost, then your brother will die. And then the children, they look at the brother, they look at Sean, look at the brother. We want Sean, you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, but, you know, father and mother insist, and then they, oh, okay, 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 take, okay, oh, okay, we'll take the brother. You can have Sean. Okay, so father and mother do what's necessary, and at midnight, angel of death comes. And every household that did not have the blood of the lamb that is wailing in the middle of the night. So imagine that same Israelite house, they wake up. And then father and mother rush over to the older brother's bed and say, Ah, okay, he's still there. He's still breathing. He's still alive. But all around them, they hear crying. The cries of someone that has lost their son. Why? Because they did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And there is this obscure detail in the instruction that Moses gave to the Israelites. 
in verse 46 of chapter 12. Oh, none of the flesh must be eaten outside and do not break any one of his bones. So when you first receive it, oh, don't eat the flesh outside, don't break the bones. Okay, okay, you know what I mean? As an Israelite family, you don't think anything of it. But John, as he comes and he sees Jesus on the cross and the criminals beside him, their legs are broken. And they were going to break his legs, but they don't because he's already dead. And John gets excited. I saw this, I saw this. You know, you know, because he understands that the one hanging on the cross is the true Passover lamb. Because of his death, the death that we should all have faced, we are now spared. Because the true Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And then the next thing John says, the next scripture, verse 37, another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. Okay, this is taken from Zechariah. Now, I'll just leave you some homework to do. Huh? You look at uh, that reference in Zechariah and you read it all the way to chapter 13, you'll see that it makes sense. Okay? But I'm looking at the time. You don't have time. But, so I'll give you some homework. Okay? Just look at that reference in Zechariah and make sure you read all the way to chapter 13, verse 1. But I want to explain what John sees in this. Because he saw the legs of Jesus not broken, and he sees that when the soldier pierced his side, water and blood came out. Now, water and blood are significant metaphors for John. In John chapter 4, uh, he records Jesus saying to the Samaritan woman, Ah, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. And in fact, that water will well up in him to be a spring of life, you know, leading to eternal life. So the water is a symbol of life. Drinking the water that Jesus gives is how one has eternal life. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Whoever drinks my blood, ah, then will he live. So you see, the, the, the water and blood okay, ha, uh, throughout John has been used as metaphors for life. And so when John sees, after the soldier pierced his sight, what comes out? What comes gushing out of the sight of Jesus is water and blood. Before that, when he said to the woman, before that, when he said to the crowds, you must drink my blood. In one sense, that blood and that water has not been made available. But at the death of Jesus, that blood and the water come gushing out. And it comes gushing out because now, now it is made, now it is freely made available. So that whoever will drink that water, whoever will drink that blood, not literally, you understand, right? That, that it, it is it's ways of talking about believing in him, trusting that this is the one who has secured our eternal life. That, that, that blood and the water now made available. And so John says, I've seen it, I've seen it, I was there, I testify, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And he says, he testifies so that, and then he turns. I mean, the whole time he's been talking about, oh, this is what happened, this is what happened. 
And then at the end of verse 35, he turns and he addresses his readers. So that you also may believe. See that principle at the beginning? Taking a picture with Santa and saying, Oh, I believe. Doesn't mean much that she just puts it there. No great reason to trust that Santa Claus still exists, still is alive today. But all these reasons that John has given us, how Jesus fulfills prophecy that he could in no way manipulate or manufacture, is so that we can believe he is the Christ. And he has died and is now alive again. And those who trust in him will have eternal life. Do you believe? May God help us. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.